0: Would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Our reading is from Mark chapter 1, verse 1 through 13. In the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written, Isaiah the prophet, behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. And all the country of Judea and Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized to him in the river Jordan, confessing their sin. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached saying, after me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to stoop down to and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan River. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. The spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness and he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. This is God's word.
1: Thank you, Cody. Uh, As I get started, I'm just going to preemptively ask for your forgiveness, because I'm going to have to clear my throat a lot and drink lots of water. I've been fighting this cough, but let's pray as we get started. God, thank you for another morning to get together and to open your word, to consider Mark and this new gospel to become more familiar with you, Jesus. Pray that this message would prove useful and helpful to these people, that we would know something more of Jesus, and that we would be emboldened to share of him and about him with our friends and neighbors. And I pray that in Jesus' name, amen. Well, today we begin our new sermon series on the Gospel of Mark. And being tasked with the first message in this series, we have a little bit of extra work to do. Uh, Before I can introduce Mark chapter 1, I need to introduce the book to you, uh, which is important. We need to know who we're dealing with and what we're dealing with if we're going to understand what's being said. Recently, I was reading this children's book uh, with my boys called Amelia Bedelia. Has anyone read this? Yeah, okay, so we already know. Amelia Bedelia is such an excellent example of why hermeneutics matters. (laughs) Because for those of you who don't know, in biblical scholarship, hermeneutics is a big word for describing uh, the biblical interpretation. And in this hilarious little book, Amelia, who's this young maid helping out a family, uh, before leaving the day, the owner of the home gives her a list of chores, like changing towels, drawing the curtains, and dressing the chicken. But Amelia has a very specific hermeneutic, When the owner's returned, she's horrified. The owner's horrified because Amelia has changed the towels by taking a pair of scissors to them, changed how they look. Amelia has drawn the curtains. She found pen and paper to draw those curtains. And to top it all off, the best part of the book, Amelia dressed the chicken. She found a pair of socks and a nice set of overalls to dress that chicken well. So she got through the list. She was doing what the owner was asked in her mind. But she had interpreted it all wrong. She didn't understand the meaning or the intent of the author. And that's why it's important to lay out some of the context for our study in Mark. If we're not careful, we can end up interpreting Mark like Amelia interpreted that list. So as we get started with the new book, I want to consider very quickly six questions on the Gospel of Mark. So our first question is, who wrote it? And as the title suggests, you know, there's agreement that the author is a John Mark Who is known to travel with apostles like paul and peter you can look at acts 15 for an example and there's also documented corroboration that this john mark is the author uh excuse me the corroboration is from the early church testifying to this john mark writing this gospel with peter's insight second question what kind of book is this you know the bible is full of different genres that need to be handled differently and gospels are narrative accounts. They tell us in story form who Jesus is and what he came to do. The third question, why did Mark write this gospel? And there's a lot of parts to this answer, but the main reason Mark wrote his gospel, which isn't so dissimilar from the other gospels, is to show readers that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. How Mark makes that claim is very unique to him. For example, Mark is extremely concise and there's many reasons why this is the case. I'll highlight, too, why he's concise. First, there's agreement that Mark wrote to Gentile readers. So it's reasonable to suggest that Gentiles were less familiar and less interested in Old Testament passages and Jewish customs. Second, Mark writes with urgency. He keeps his storytelling concise to get to the point so that people will repent and believe. And if you've read the book before, then you know that something which jumps out at you is the 48 times that Mark will use the word immediately. He's not wasting any time. He's getting right to the point, immediately, immediately. And a couple weeks ago, I mentioned that Matthew uses copious Old Testament references to identify Jesus as the Messiah. That as a book, Matthew's portrayal of Jesus is like a license or passport. He's giving all those Old Testament references to provide identification. Mark, on the other hand, is not like that. He's brief. His gospel is more like a curated highlight reel composed of short clips that get to the point. All right, fourth question, what's the structure? This is something I can nerd out on so much, but again, we're keeping it concise. One scholar puts it this way, R.T. France, points out there's three basic acts or dramas to the Gospel account. We have Jesus in Galilee, Jesus journeying to Jerusalem, Jesus on the way, and then Jesus in Jerusalem. So the events of Mark can fit in one of those three sections. Galilee on the way in Jerusalem. And just as a helpful note, to give you perspective, Galilee was not a town or a city. In fact, Galilee literally means circle or district. So for example, part of the Jordan River is in Galilee, the city of Nazareth is in Galilee. So to speak of Galilee is like speaking about Middlesex County, a lot of towns in it. And one more note on geography, the journey from Galilee to Jerusalem would have been, give or take 100 miles. And that would be like walking from Boston to Sandy Island, from Boston to Lake Winnipesaukee. If you walked it, you'd be walking uh, the length of Galilee to Jerusalem. The fifth question we need to ask is a continual question, one we will revisit again and again. It's a central question to keep in the back of our minds, which is, what is Mark telling us about Jesus? Whenever we're in the gospel, that is the point of, of this author's book is to tell us something about Jesus. So wherever you find yourself in the gospel, this should be a question that comes to mind. What is Mark telling us about Jesus? And the last and sixth question for us is more of a personal one. Why does Westgate need the gospel of Mark? Why do you and I need the gospel of Mark? And I expect Bruce and Travis will weigh in on this themselves when they get behind this pulpit, but I will simply say, a study on the gospel of Mark is in keeping with our church vision, which is to see Christ treasured above all things. And if we want to see that happen in our neighborhoods and in us, then we need to intentionally spend time with Jesus, getting to know him more. And spending time in the gospel is one important way to do that. So we're doing that with Mark. So that's some of the basic background, and that's why we need that before we move forward. But let's move forward now to chapter 1. And as we get into chapter one, think with me for a moment about some of the significant moments of your lives. I think for most of us, some of those monumental uh, moments are uh, having kids and getting married. For those of you with children, can you remember some of the preparations you made for your first child? And with our first kid, I can remember feeling kind of panicked because I had no idea how childbirth worked or what you're supposed to do with a newborn. So to prepare, we took classes, we read books, talked to a lot of other parents, and it didn't stop there. We spent hours looking at names and their meaning, looking at best brands of strollers, car seats, and high chairs, all sorts of stuff. A lot of preparation went into that first child's arrival. If you don't have kids and you're married, can you remember some of the preparations you made for your wedding? Before proposing, I had no clue how much went into a wedding. There's the venue and the outfits, photographer, food, flowers, and on and on and on. And if you're like us, then you also prepared by reading books, seeking counsel, and talking to a lot of other married people. A lot of preparation could go into marriage. In the first chapter of Mark, what we encounter is preparation. John prepares the way for Jesus, preparing the people for his arrival, and then Jesus himself undergoes preparation for his ministry of Proclamation. And although Mark keeps his narratives short, what we can appreciate from Mark is that he felt these three events of John the Baptist, Jesus' baptism, and Jesus' temptation were all necessary events of preparation to show us that Jesus is the one who can help us. So with these three succinct events of Jesus, we see that Jesus is promised, Jesus is approved, and Jesus is tested. In a word, Mark shows us Jesus is sufficiently prepared for ministry. And the clearest, most familiar purpose statement we have in Mark is one you're probably familiar with, Mark 10, 45, where he says, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The cross is the objective that Jesus sets his eyes on. These first 13 verses show us that he is up to the task. So here's my big idea, one that you could take away with you. said, Jesus was approved and tested for the work of salvation. Therefore, we should tell of him and trust in him. It's a bit long. I'll say it again. Jesus was approved and tested for the work of salvation. Therefore, we should tell of him and trust in him. Now, to show you how I arrived at that big idea, we must go to the scripture. So if you haven't already, please turn to Mark chapter 1 with me going to take these first 13 verses in two parts. The first section, verses 1 to 8, we see that the people are prepared for Jesus's arrival. 1 to 8, the people are prepared for his arrival. And the second section is verses 9 to 13, where we see Jesus is prepared for his ministry to people. Jesus is prepared for his ministry to people. Look at verse 1 again with me. Mark simply writes, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As the people are being prepared for the arrival of Jesus, so too Mark prepares his readers for his narrative about Jesus. One scholar points out that for the majority of his gospel, Mark, as a narrator, is rather silent. He doesn't personally tell you what he thinks. Rather, he lets the actions and words of others influence you. Of course, the way Mark organizes his book is unique to him. But in this first verse, what we have is Mark's thoughts, Mark's witness, Mark's conviction and declaration that Jesus is the Son of God. And without wasting time, he gets right to it saying, what you're about to read is about Jesus, the Son of God. First sentence of the book. Of course, Mark doesn't want to present his voice as the only witness to Jesus. As he starts his book, he begins with multiple witnesses. First as we heard already, he himself is a witness. Second, we have the prophets, and then thirdly, we have John the Baptist. Look at verses two and three. The way Mark frames the Old Testament quotation uh, to our minds makes us think that Mark is pulling this quotation just from Isaiah, but this quote is actually a combination of three quotes from Exodus, Malachi, and Isaiah. But we don't need to get wound up over that. Mark was perfectly in line with literary conventions of his time, and what Mark does is attribute the entirety of the quote to Isaiah for two reasons. First, Isaiah was considered one of the greatest prophets and was likely more well-known than Exodus or Malachi. And second, although Mark quotes from a couple books, he wants to focus on the Isaiah quotation. <clears throat> and that makes sense because it's Isaiah who explicitly speaks about one crying in the wilderness. Well, Mark quotes the prophets to give credence to his gospel about Jesus to say, I'm about to tell you about Jesus in this gospel of mine, But the story of Jesus doesn't actually begin with my gospel. If you've read Exodus, Malachi, and Isaiah, you've already gotten glimpses. Long ago, the prophets predicted not only that Jesus would come, but how he would come. This brings us to our third witness. How Jesus would come has everything to do with preparation. That's what this John the Baptist was doing, preparing the way of the Lord. What did this preparation include? What was the substance of this preparation? Verse 4, John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The preparation that had to take place was in the hearts and souls of God's people. And this was a radical thing that, God, that John was doing. As readers, we get a sense of how radical John was by Mark's descriptions. Again, Mark typically doesn't use up ink giving details, but with John, he tells us a lot. He tells us what he wears, what he eats, where he lives, and what he's saying. In verses 5 to (laughs) 8, we see he wears camels, hair, and a belt. We hear he eats locusts and honey, and we're told he lives in the desert, and we're told that he spoke of a greater one to come, a mightier one to come. And the point of highlighting those four things is to highlight John's humility and devotion to God. What we encounter in John is a man who knows what matters most, which is God. And although John seems odd, his message is received and welcomed by people all over Israel. That's verse 5. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. There was a recognition by others of the significance of John and the message that he brought. When people were coming out to him, they were going for renewal. And this practice was likely unique to him. There are some ceremonial washings that are part of Jewish custom, but nothing quite like John's. The closest thing we find is when Gentiles, uh, Gentile converts would undergo ceremonial cleansing and commitment to God. But in John, everyone is coming for this renewal. And as they come, they're being prepared for the one who is mightier than John to arrive. And I don't think John would be bothered by this, but <clears throat> it's fair to see John as this opening act, right? He knows this. He knows that his job, his time in the limelight, will be eclipsed by someone greater. He's counting on it. He knows that the headlining act is, is who people are really come to see. But in the meantime, he's content to gather a crowd and get folks ready for that person. But unlike a concert, which is all fun and games, to get the people ready for Jesus requires hard work, confession, and repentance, now, as we step back and reflect on verses 1 to 8, <coughs> we see that Mark, the prophets, and John are all preparing us for the arrival of Jesus, but something we need to realize is that we as Christians are not only preparing for Jesus, the actions of John the Baptist should inspire us to action. One author presents a question for all of us to consider, saying this, how can God use us to prepare the way for Jesus? Jesus. How can God use us to prepare the way for Jesus? When he arrives on the scene, John's ministry isn't needed anymore. No longer do people need to meet a camel clothed man in the wilderness, but people still need to meet Jesus. And the conviction and humility that John has is still needed today. Today, we now have the responsibility of preparing the way for Jesus of speaking about him, pointing to him, calling others to repentance, ourselves included. One of my favorite Christian authors, this professor and pastor named Jared Wilson, he has this short little saying, a conversation that I think is emblematic of John. It's basically, again, you this con- tiny conversation between someone and himself, a preacher. Someone asks Jared, you're the preacher, to which he responds, yes. Yes person follows up and comments, so you're the guy with all the answers? And Jared responds, no, I'm the guy who points to that guy. And again, I think that sort of attitude is emblematic of what John the Baptist is doing in the wilderness, pointing out that there's one greater than him. In the Gospel of John, when he tells the story of John the Baptist, he famously says, he, meaning Jesus, must increase, but I must decrease. And we should carry that sort of attitude as well. all together, we see that Mark, the prophets, and John the Baptist act as witnesses of the arrival of Jesus. God uses all of them for the preparation of his people. So here's a simple takeaway from verses 1 to 8. God used witnesses to prepare a way for Jesus. Therefore, we too should be witnesses preparing a way for Jesus. God used witnesses to prepare a way for Jesus. Therefore, we too should be witnesses preparing a way for Jesus. In verses 1 to 8, we see that the people are prepared for Jesus. And in verses 9 to 13, we will see that Jesus is prepared for his ministry to people. We'll look there next. In this final section, Mark describes two events rather succinctly. We have the baptism and the temptation of Jesus. And I think together we can kind of think of these events as a sort of divine quality control. If the Son of God is going to be sent to save the world, then you want to make sure that he is up to the task. And although short, Mark shows us that Jesus is sufficiently prepared for his ministry. And his preparation has four parts to it. So first is that Jesus is baptized by John. In verse 7, John says, One mightier than I is coming. And then verses 9 to 11, we see who he's speaking of Jesus. Now, sometimes the question is raised why would Jesus need to be baptized? Especially since John's baptism was one of confession and repentance of sin. Isn't Jesus sinless? And yes, of course, Jesus is sinless. So his baptism isn't exactly the same as those from Judea and Jerusalem who came. Rather, as one commentator points out, the baptism of Jesus was a prerequisite to his ministry because it was a means of meaningfully identifying with sinful people. Although he didn't have sins to confess, we do. And in order to identify with our fallen need, he participates in the baptism. But more happens in this baptism as well, which brings us to the second aspect of his preparation, which is Jesus is approved by the Father. The scene is rather dramatic and majestic. Verse 10 Jesus comes out of the water, heavens are torn open, and the Spirit descends on him like a dove. And to top it all off, a voice from heaven speaks, saying, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. Now, in two verses, we encounter the remarkable presence of the Godhead, the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all present. In this importance, of this statement from God, from God the Father takes on additional meaning when you consider the silence that precedes it. For 400 years, there is an audible gap where God was silent, but when Jesus arrives and is baptized, that four centuries-long silence is broken with those words, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased which all the more confirms that Jesus is the promised one to come, the mightier one to come. But identifying himself with broken people and being approved by the Father doesn't complete his preparation. More needed to take place. And these last two movements of preparation are related. Verses 12 and 13, we see that Jesus is sent by the Spirit and is tested by Satan sent by the Spirit, tested by Satan. That Jesus is sent by the Spirit is significant because it shows us that this testing was sanctioned by God. It would be one thing if Satan snatched him up and brought him to the desert to duel, but it's not Satan. It's the Spirit that immediately brings Jesus to the wilderness. Now, why might God find it so important to bring Jesus into the wilderness, to go toe-to-toe with Satan? I think this commentator Jason Meyer gives a great answer. He writes, the Son of God cannot save sinners if he becomes one. If Jesus fails the test, if he cannot remain faithful through temptation, then the story is over. There is no hope for salvation in that scenario. When Jesus goes head to head with Satan and survives, we get further confirmation that this Jesus can do what he's called to do. In addition to all that, that Jesus was in the wilderness 40 days is no small detail. Jesus was not the first beloved son to be tempted. Earlier in the Old Testament, we hear of the people of Israel who have to wander in the wilderness for 40 years because of their sin. But also, Jesus is not the first person to go toe-to-toe with the devil. Adam was. And with those two, you already get a sense for the tragedy of the Old Testament that God's people from Adam to Israel, that no one was able to perfectly stand firm against temptation. But Jesus was. When Jesus battles Satan, he doesn't waver. And if we're going to depend on a Savior to rescue all of us, then you want to be certain that your hero is up to the task. Jesus proved he was. When all is said and done, and we read that the angels are ministering to him, the image that comes to mind is one of boxing, where you have the coach and the corner man who are there to give the fighter water and to bandage his wounds. When the angels minister to him, it signals the conclusion of the fight, that he's won and he gets some well-deserved care. In this short section, we see that Jesus undergoes preparation before his ministry, baptized by John, approved by the Father, sent by the Spirit, and tested by Satan. All so that he could begin his earthly ministry with the purpose of facing a Roman cross. <clears throat> As I reflected on this second portion of the passage, I thought of an illustration I think might help us understand what Mark is doing, So to contextualize him for today, one way of thinking of the preparation that Jesus goes through is to understand Jesus preparing for a job. If you've been in interviews, what are some of the most common things employers are looking for? Recommendations and experience. In Mark's gospel, what he is about to show us over the next 15 chapters is that there is a job that needs to get done, a task to, to accomplish, some work to be finished, The job, of course, being the salvation of the world. And knowing what the job is, Mark is showing us that this Jesus comes with the highest recommendation and the most relevant experience. Is there a recommendation higher than God himself? That's what Jesus receives. Not only does he receive that, his experience is most relevant. The Son of God, who can go head to head with Satan, can certainly save people from sin. And here's the why that matters for us. The second simple takeaway from you, for you, excuse me, is that God shows us that Jesus is approved for ministry. Therefore, we should trust in Jesus as our capable Savior. God shows us that Jesus is approved for ministry, therefore we should trust in Jesus as our capable. Savior. Trust is the key word there. We can trust Jesus because he's approved by God. We could trust in Jesus because he stood against the devil. Jesus is the only man for the job. He's the only one deserving of this great recommendation. Only one who could withstand the devil. And if I can press into the imagery a little more, the issue that people have faced since Adam is attempting to find others who appear to fit the job description of salvation It's a classic error, first detailed by the reformers. It's not so much that we go looking for others to save us, but rather look to ourselves for salvation. We can get into this ditch that has us thinking that people can earn salvation by their own works, that we can live good enough or behave good enough. But the standard for earning salvation is perfection, and none of us are able to attain that. Thankfully, as Mark will show us, our salvation doesn't depend on our works. It depends on Christ. And what we'll see as we make our way through the book is how repeatedly Jesus is presented to us as the right man for the job. He will continue to receive commendations from others and he will continue to go toe to toe with Satan and those who serve him. But at the end of the day, the purpose of Mark is to show us that Jesus is in fact the Son of God the Savior of the world. I'll end with how it began. Jesus was approved and tested for the work of salvation. Therefore, we should tell of him and trust in him. Let's pray. God, thank you for this book of Mark. Thank you for the preparation that Jesus went through to confirm to us all the more that he was the right man for the job. Thank you for having the cross in view for us. Pray that you would help us, God, to tell of you to all we come into contact with and to trust in you in all times. You have proven to us that you are unlike anyone else. Be with us, Lord. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.